representation matters. It's really important to to see others in spaces that mimic you or that look like you, that represent your same goals and values and what you can bring to, to the subject matter. Hello and welcome to another episode of If Oceans Could Speak, the podcast that listens to the oceans through the personal stories of those who share their life with the sea around them. As always, Stefan and I are going to be chatting to the people behind these unique stories in the hope that our conversations not only intrigue, but inspire you to reflect upon your own individual connection to the ocean. In this episode, we will be focusing on perspectives from the Arctic Ocean, and we're delighted to have Kimberly Aiken with us today. Kimberly currently works as a research and policy associate for the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition and previously worked in the Arctic as a policy intern with the Alfred Wegener Institute and on the Poland Climate Programme at Grit Arendal. Kimberly is interested in the social and human dimensions of Arctic environmental change and expanding diversity and inclusion efforts in all areas of polar research and policy. To make this episode extra special, Kimberly brings her perspectives of both poles. We're so excited to welcome you, Kimberly, and thank you for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Kimberly, let's let's start at the beginning, I guess. You grew up in the countryside of South Carolina in the USA. And in my mind, that's extremely different to the world of the high Arctic. So my first question, I guess, is how did you get first introduced to the Arctic world? Uh, thank you for that question. It's a great question. Uh, yeah, growing up in the countryside, it's like a hundred times removed from both the Arctic and the Antarctic. And I didn't become uh, more closely involved in polar affairs until 2016, actually, um, when I lived in New York City. And uh, it was actually through uh, documentaries, uh, particularly Mission Blue and Blue Planet. And I learned so much uh, through these two documentaries. They were so profound and had such a profound effect on me that in that moment, I decided to have a career change. Um, and, and the idea was simply birthed in my bedroom in my apartment in Brooklyn. Did you ever think it would become a reality that you would, that you would go into that? Uh, you know, that's a great question also. Uh, I guess I never really thought that I would be doing the things that I'm doing right now. Uh, you know, in my career, and I haven't even been doing this that long compared to many others who've been doing this for a really long time. It, everything just sort of catapulted and I just sort of went off into orbit and just, you know, took the, uh, the bull by the horns, if you will, and, and just wanted to get involved in, in everything that was polar related from policy to governance to social issues, environmental justice issues, the human dimension you know, environmental degradation and just everything, uh, really. And so I just really sort of immersed myself uh, and did a lot of reading on my own, uh, both personally and professionally uh, through my graduate studies. And yeah, I just wanted to, you know, shape it into something that really fits me and my personality. Before you started to work in the Arctic, you've been working as a legal secretary for seven years and you won MA in international environmental policy. How did this inspire you in your journey to governance in the polar regions? And how did you establish a career there? Well, you know, I was looking for something that was self-gratifying, you know, and that was, again, you know, the thing that sort of drove me down this path. Um, even before I knew it, I found the work 
the issues, the affairs, the people, everything to just be gratifying on a level that I can't even really explain. And then because I came a little bit from a legal background and working with a lot of, you know, some of the best and brightest minds in New York City in law, uh, from environmental law to trademark and patent and everything in between, oftentimes I would see that, you know, I guess the clients would, could easily find a way, some loopholes, some gap in the law uh, that could help them as opposed to, I guess, the environment sort of being the, cl- the client. And then I thought to myself, well, well, what if we, you know, flip this on its head and decide that, you know, the environment should, should be the client. And I don't know, I guess in hindsight, maybe I should have did environmental law or something like that. Um, <laughs> so, so that really sort of helped get me more involved in the issues and subjects of, of polar governance and the interconnected web of international institutions and mechanisms that help govern both these places and, and manage the region. Thanks for that. That sounds fascinating. And so your first time in the Arctic, where was it? How did it come about? And, and can you try and paint us a picture of, of what it was like to, to actually set foot there? Yeah, certainly. So I, I think my first time in the Arctic would be the Canadian subarctic. I was in the Yukon doing some uh, field research for an Arctic field summer school that I participated in back in 2019 on Kulani Lake in the First Nations area of, of the area. And it was a wonderful experience. Um, I learned so much. I was one of maybe only two policy students that were participating in the uh, Arctic Field Summer School. And it was a very uh, rewarding um, experience of, of looking at you know, different parts of the cryosphere, uh, particularly at the Costco Walsh Glacier uh, that's in the area. But I guess one of my other main highlights was when I was above the Arctic Circle, last year in 2020 in January when I was in Tromsø and uh, in the parts of the Swedish and Finnish Arctic when I visited the three nations border. And I believe it was maybe negative 25 degrees Fahrenheit there. And um, it was all icy white conditions and everything as far as the eye could see was white and it was very windy. And I think if I had to echo the words of Miss Barbara Hillary, uh, one of my... Um, idols, uh, I would probably say the same thing that she said when she made it to the North Pole is, I just felt light both in my in my heart and body and, and spirit. And it was just a beautiful experience. And it just touched depths and parts of me that I, I never thought could be reached. And uh, I was just so grateful and so fortunate to, to have those experiences and opportunities. And I hope to have many more. This idea to be touched by Arctic by this special experience. I think that's something that a lot of people who come to the Arctic for the first time experience. How has your relationship with the Arctic grown over the years? <laughs> I think that's a great question and one that I'm particularly interested in answering because, you know, my relationship with the Arctic, it grows, you know, with the Arctic and the Antarctic, uh, it grows deeper and deeper, you know, every time particularly when I'm walking through the landscape and interacting with the natural elements and with the communities, particularly in the Arctic, you know, there's always so much to learn and so much to absorb and take in, you know, to appreciate really. For me, it provides exceptional perspective to one's position in the world. Um, and it's really helped foster for me a deeper feeling of human connectedness, both with others that are different, but similar to me, 
who share a like-mindedness uh, that's woven together through our shared experiences and storytelling, but also to my connectedness with the earth and with our natural landscape and the environment and everything that it provides to us all. Uh, so I think that there has certainly been evolutions. It certainly teaches me patience, uh, stillness. There is a lot of quietness in the background, but so much is still happening at the same time. So it has uh, taught me to really appreciate so much more the things that I have, the things that I don't have, the things that we all have, and the things that we all share. Um, and just remembering that, you know, everything is a system and we're all a part of this system. And, you know, it's just really a beautiful thing. So I'm really glad about the way in which our relationship continues to grow so beautifully uh, around each other. It sounds amazing. It sounds um, as if you've worked so hard to reach this point in your career and you, you just take it all in as much as you can. And, and, and I think that's something to really value. Um, I was wondering quickly to follow on from that, what is it about? the Arctic and Antarctic that brings about such this visceral feeling and you can't really seem to get that from anywhere else. What, what Can you pinpoint exactly what it is about the polar regions that brings about these feelings? <laughs> for me, I know this probably would be a silly answer, but it really for me is the cold. I enjoy the cold very much. I, I don't fancy uh, warm weather particularly at all. I have a very low threshold for heat. But it's something about just, you know, I mean, when you see it either through a documentary or if you see it with the naked eye, it's almost like your breath is just taken away. Uh, you can't even really almost find words to put on something so beautiful, you know, so natural and so organic, you know, something that is both forgiving and unforgiving, uh, you know, can be both beautiful and treacherous all at the same time. Um, I think, you know, this, this understanding of, of how all of this, you know, happens and takes place in both the Arctic and the Antarctic is just so fascinating. And, and I'm particularly fascinated with, you know, different earth systems, particularly our planetary systems, and then our earth systems, and how all of these things work and function together. And, and so it is, it is these things that sort of, I guess, drives me to, you know, to this longingness of, of these regions and, and their beauty and, you know, their diversity. You know, most people think about them as just very all white landscapes and, and it's boring and maybe there is nothing to see because everything is white, but there's everything to see. And, and that's the beauty in all of that. And I think that when you have on the right lens, you can see all of that. And it shows you so much more that you can't even really see or find anywhere else in the world. So it is, it is remarkably beautiful. And I've not yet been to the Antarctic, but uh, I hope someday. And I, I look very much forward to that. I would love that just to hear your um, perspective of the Ar Antarctic as well. I think you, you paint it so, so beautifully. So um, you wrote passionately about Miss Hillary, who you mentioned before, and she was the first African-American person to reach both poles. And just as Miss Hillary was an inspiration for you, you are aspiring to become a role model for young girls and people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds to get an interest into the polar regions. 
What do you think are the challenges for diversity and inclusion in STEM, science, technology, engineering, math subjects? And what would you say to those who are listening and, and would like to, to be engaged more in polar regions and polar oceans? Yes, thank you for that question. It's a very loaded question. You know, certainly not, I guess, a very new question. You know, there are many challenges that face the STEM fields and, and the polar community is certainly not immune um, from these challenges, um, particularly seeing people of color, uh, more in particular black and indigenous people in polar science, polar research policy. You know, it is difficult. Uh, I myself have, you know, most recently, well, I should say most recently, but last year faced a bit of adversity you know, in the Arctic community. And that, and that was very unfortunate for me. It's actually very painful, you know, and in part sort of naive of me uh, to think that it, it wouldn't happen, or I guess particularly that it wouldn't come so very soon. But I think, you know, this idea of inclusiveness, particularly to the Arctic, uh, there's over some 4 million people that live in the Arctic and um, many uh, that belong to different indigenous communities and, and they have so much to share on this subject matter. You know, they are in essence, the experts in a lot of ways to this region, you know, this is their home. And, um, and I think that we, as a society and as a polar community, we have to stop making decisions about people and places without one, consulting these people and having conversations with these people and including them in the science and the research and papers and so on, but using their indigenous traditional knowledge systems and indigenous science as a complementary tool piece to Western science to come up with better solutions of how we can coexist uh, in these places in, in the face of climate change. Um, and I guess, what I would say to, to young girls and, and boys, people of color that are interested in the polar regions, I know it looks dire and grim, you know, representation matters. It's really important to, to see others in spaces that mimic you or that look like you, that represent your same goals and values and what you can bring to, to the subject matter. And so I, I hope that to many others who are interested in getting involved, that they see me as a person that they can look to um, and envision themselves through of being able to, to work in any space or field that, they, that their heart desires. And, and I didn't see a reflection of that. I still don't see a reflection of that uh, in the polar community. There's probably maybe one to 5% of people of color working in, in this field. Uh, but I hope that we can change this and, and open doors and minds and take a different approach and stop leaving talent on the table or in the community, if you will, and sort of bringing it all in so that we can have, you know, better discussions and ask the right questions about how we can move forward, both as a society of being better individuals uh, around diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also how we can be better for the environment that serves us all. So, so that's that's my hope and my goal. I have a lot of work to do there, but um, I'm hopeful that uh, some pages are turning, and I, I think many in the polar community, both in the Arctic and Antarctic, are, are really seeing this and and making uh, and taking uh, steps 
to uh, to diversify the area and include uh, other perspectives and voices because they're very important. Thank you for this important reflection also on our polar communities. In your project, Governance in the Arctic, you've addressed fundamental questions regarding ownership in the Arctic, of the Arctic governance, but also the role of indigenous peoples, the existing institutions and agreements in Arctic cooperation. And you know, you're personally interested in incorporating, as you just mentioned, indigenous traditional knowledge into science and policy. Why is this important also for the future of the Arctic Ocean? Yeah, um, I first like to say, you know, I, you know, I often think it best that my indigenous brothers and sisters, uh, you know, answer these types of questions, you know, because, well, one, because they're indigenous and, and then two, they're, you know, more experts and scholars uh, in this field. But uh, I'd like to, you know, echo the words of uh, an indigenous colleague and friend um, of mine, uh, you know, we often have these different conversations about things and, um, you know, indigenous traditional knowledge is important, not just to the science to policy interface, but to the Arctic Ocean and any issues in particular uh, in the in the Arctic, uh, because it's a knowledge system that understands the ecosystem in a different way than Western science does. and. It also provides a more robust uh, and better understanding of what's going on in the environment uh, to make informed decisions uh, and choices, uh, whether it's about climate adaptation or development. I mean, it's also ethically right to include in the science to policy interface, uh, because by doing so, you know, indigenous traditional knowledge systems, you know, help us better understand, I guess, a people in a place and the interconnectedness of those things. And so I think that's very important. Um, you know, again, I think I may have said, you know, just previously that, you know, indigenous traditional knowledge or indigenous science should be seen as a complementary tool to science, to Western science, to help us better understand things. And there is really no, no right or wrong you know, here. And I think that's really what is the beauty of this. And, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, time is both our friend and not our friend. It is not always on our side. And so I think there is a great deal to be learned from Indigenous traditional knowledge, science, and, you know, their relationship, uh, not only just to nature, but to uh, kinship with others, uh, with the community, not, uh, you know, human beings and non-human beings. And, and that provides a very sort of different perspective to how we understand ourselves both with nature and, and being able to, uh, to make decisions uh, better about uh, nature and an environment. So thank you. That's an important reminder that different forms of knowledge are truly important, especially in the Arctic. Your work now focuses on the Southern Ocean. When you look at both the Arctic Ocean and the Southern Ocean, do you see challenges which are similar for both oceans, or do you see the differences being more pronounced? Actually, I see maybe the challenges are, are most similar, and I think they're most pronounced, particularly 
uh, climate change uh, is the main challenge, right? You know, changes in sea ice conditions, sea ice thickness, uh, loss of ice mass to the uh, Antarctic ice sheet, uh, you know, shipping, changes in ocean water temperature and salinity. Uh, all of these things, you know, really stem from climate change. This is, is, this is the main driver of, of challenges to both regions. I mean, certainly, you know, they are, the actors are, are a bit different and the geopolitical interests are different yet similar. But, you know, both regions, they have a lot in common. And it, it, it's very important to remember that, you know, the Arctic Ocean, the Southern Ocean, Antarctica, the Arctic, uh, you know, they are the air conditions of the earth, really. Uh, you know, when we think about it, they are the things that help protect us and cool us down when things are heating up too much. Um, and right now, both of those regions are heating up too much. And certainly what happens in the Arctic and the Antarctic in the Arctic Ocean, the Southern Ocean does not stay there. Uh, you know, it finds its way throughout the rest of the planet. And, and so, you know, looking at this and in my work with the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, ASOC, we're looking at, you know, these challenges and, and trying to to work with uh, global leaders from an NGO perspective um, and a policy perspective to figure out ways and to help mitigate climate change and, and other challenges uh, facing the region, you know, like uh, shipping or, or, or fishing and, and transshipment and so on and those sorts of things, particularly in the Antarctic, but also, you know, designating marine protected areas to combat and fight the twin global crisis of climate change and biodiversity loss. Right. I like that idea of thinking about the Arctic and Antarctic as um, the air conditioning for the world. I think that's a really good way of putting it, actually. Um, brings it home really nicely. Talking about being inspired and maybe also being an inspiration for others, is there an achievement that you're particularly proud of in your career? You know, honestly... I guess I never, I'm, I'm one that I never really like to, uh, I guess, think of or reduce my career uh, to one single achievement that I'm most proud of. For me, it's more like a, a series of achievements or moments like this one, for example, and many others combined that make me the most proud, you know, when I've had the luxury of being able to sit with Sami indigenous communities uh, in, in Norway or, you know, sitting with Inuit or Yupik uh, indigenous communities uh, in Alaska or at different polar conferences or meetings that I've attended. Or, you know, even simply, you know, working with my boss and others at ASOC, you know, it, or particularly even working at AVI, you know, which was something that was definitely on my bucket list of things to do. It is the combination of all of these things uh, together uh, that make me the most proud and all the things that I've been able to do and see and the people that I've been able to connect with and meet. These experiences and opportunities are the things that I'm truly most proud of and, and being able to do them in such a short period of time I've only uh, graduated with my master's, I believe that was last year in 2020, but I sort of 
took a head start approach to my career in the polar community at the very beginning of my graduate career, which started in 2018. So I'm just really, really grateful and thankful for all of these moments and opportunities and experiences and everyone who has been with me, both as a mentor and a friend um, along the way who uh, have helped guide and uh, my thoughts on, on how I can be of help and, and get involved more deeply in, in the polar uh, community and the issues. And if you could share one thought, one idea about the Arctic Ocean and the Southern Ocean that you would like to give to our, um, listeners to share with our listeners, what would that be? Oh, yeah, certainly. I love this question. Uh, well, for starters, I want everyone to remember that everyone on the planet benefits from the Arctic and Southern Ocean, no matter how far removed you are. Um, it's also important to remember the relationship of the Arctic and Southern Ocean to global health through regulating the Earth's climate and the nutrients that the Arctic and Southern Ocean pump throughout the ocean. Right now, the EU is proposing two large-scale marine protected areas in the Southern Ocean, in the East Antarctic and the Weddell Sea, uh, both of which right now are blocked by Russia and China. In order to overcome this opposition, we need global leaders to act now in 2021. And I hope that many others will, will join in on the ASOC campaign of calling on Kamlar to secure Antarctica and to work with uh, other global leaders and institutions in the Arctic to secure the Arctic Ocean as well for future generations and for you know, the beauty of, of both of these regions. And, and so that is my hope and that is what I would like to leave uh, both with you all and, and with the rest of the world to remember the importance of both the Arctic and Southern Ocean and the benefits that they provide to to us all so working in constant knowledge of all of these threats that you've just listed it can be a really daunting thing and i guess it weighs quite a lot on your mind quite quite often and is there one thing or a few things that still give you hope for these environments and how do you how do you deal with these sort of extrinsic uh i don't know the word extrinsic um threats threats yeah <laughs> yeah uh you know that's that's a great question also um you know, it, it can be daunting, you know, really. And, and sometimes you think, oh, gosh, you know, maybe there's no hope for us. But um, I'm optimistic. And I would say that I am cautiously hopeful. But the thing that gives me hope for these environments, for, I guess, the planet as a whole, is the people that I work with every single day, myself included. I think it is that, that fire, that passion, that dedication that burns inside of each and every one of us doing this work that reminds me of our mission to continue to do this work 
And every day when I work with these people and I'm in different meetings and calls um, and having discussions and conversations and strategizing and thinking about next steps always and what we can do either better or differently creatively, these things sort of inspire me. Uh, the people around me, the people that I work with, they inspire me. And I see our vision. And I, I do believe that continuing this work, that we can make the change that we need. Also, I will say, you know, to the younger generation, to people, you know, indigenous uh, youth, and to youth all over from all different backgrounds who take a stand on climate action, on climate change, on environmental and social justice and how all of these things affect their communities or the planet in general. That also gives me hope uh, that persons are not just particularly sitting around and saying that they will leave it up to others to, to sort of sort this out. The best news is that it's never really almost too late to get involved and you're not too young or too old to get involved, right? So, so that is the beauty and those things give me hope. And I think as long as, you know, each and every one of us have this burning desire to, to be the change we wish to see in the world, you know, gives me hope that, you know, we can move the needle a bit more of course, public policy is rather slow, but maybe with some uh, adopting of uh, adaptive governance strategies and, and maybe some other creative solutions that we can move this needle a little bit faster. And so I would say for sure that I am uh, cautiously optimistic and hopeful for, for our future and for, uh, for both polar regions, the Arctic and Southern Ocean. I think that's a perfect uh, message to share. And I think that's also a really good place for us to finish for today. I just want to say thank you for sharing your journey with us. And I really genuinely feel that you have this, this passion inside of you that's going to take you to lots of amazing places. So thank you for sharing just a small snippet of that in our podcast for today. Thank you so very much again for the invitation. That's all for today. Do check out Kimberly's excellent article on her idol, Miss Hillary, called Trailblazer in the Arctic, a tribute to the first African-American to reach both poles. You can find it on the Arctic Institute's website, and we've put a link to it in this episode's blurb. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating on whichever listening platform you're using. And if you would like to share your own ocean stories, connect with us using the hashtag IfOceansCouldSpeak. This podcast was brought to you by members of the EU for Ocean Initiative and was made by the If Oceans Could Speak production team, led by Penny Clark, co-organised by Arne Rydell and Anna Saito, and presented by Stefan Kirschner and me, Jen Freer. From all of us, thank you for listening. <laughs>